Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. <laughs> Here we go, guys. Welcome back. Welcome back to another episode of the Two Tongues Podcast. Chris coming at you solo again today. Um, today we're gonna do we're gonna do an introduction. Look, this episode is really uh, it's a long ways in the making. So you guys remember that I talked about a guy named Philip Goff before. Um, if you remember that name, it's because. He was the guy I talked about in terms of um, explaining this idea of panpsychism. It's really right up the uh, mystic alley that I like to go down, just as a refresher. The idea of panpsychism is something like, well, it's a it's a philosophical idea, but it's but it's um, the philosophy of physics. So it's sort of it's sort of tiptoeing along on that metaphysical line, um, but also the scientific line. And there are physicists, theoretical physicists, that are becoming more and more um, that are adhering more and more to this idea or being more open to the idea. And it's something like this. Whatever psyche is, and that's a Greek word, but it, it, it's something that we use when we, uh, like synonymously with mind or soul, you know, th- those sorts of things. Um, it, but psyche is something in like all of those words that means something like consciousness. So pan is a Greek god. Um, the, the word just simply means all. So... Panpsychism is um, everything, all is psyche somehow, and you can kind of see how that's right up my alley to, to conceptualize the um, cosmos and everything as consciousness. Uh, I believe that. I, I think that's. I think that's something that uh, that it's an intuition from the mystic experience. It's something that um, you know uh, lots of people have said before. I'm certainly not a new idea. Uh, but Philip Goff, he talked a lot about it, and um, that's kind of where I heard about it from, was from him. Uh, if anybody's interested, Philip Goff was on Joe Rogan's podcast not long ago. Uh, truth be told, wasn't my favorite interview with Philip Goff. You can probably find better ones. Um, but he was on he was on the great uh, JRE not long ago. Um, and this is these are the ideas that, that um, he talks about. But there's somebody that he references that I keep hearing about over and over again. Um, a guy named David David Chalmers. Uh, David Chalmers is also a philosopher. Um, if you if you if you wiki uh, David Chalmers, what you're going to find out is says here he's a uh, uh, Australian philosopher, uh, the cognitive uh, scientist specialist, um, works for the um, um, University of New York. Looks like so uh, New York University professor of philosophy and neuroscience, something like that. Uh, but he's kind of a big time name in this in this area, cognitive science, the exploration of consciousness, um, all that sort of thing. And he's written lots of things. But his uh, his big book is called um, The Conscious Mind, and and Philip Goff talked about it over and over again. So I was like, I guess there's something else to add to the reading list. And I opened it up and took some notes. So what I want to do is sort of introduce David Chalmers' idea. Um, he's going to talk about consciousness in an interesting way. He's going to talk about how it's how it's been neglected by science. The idea of consciousness has been neglected by science. He, he's a philosopher, so he's going to get really specific about what he means by that. He's going to explain kind of what we know about about consciousness. Um, so I'm going to give you the intro. I expect this is going to take several episodes. So this is just sort of the beginning. Um, and as I typically do, I've typed up a bit of an intro. So I want to read this for you, um, and then we can jump into it. 
but this is Chalmers' conscious mind. All right, here we go. I've said many times on this podcast that consciousness is God. It is the fundamental scaffolding upon which material reality is built. It contains material reality within itself somehow and fills up that space with things that reflect that very consciousness. We are God within God within God. Something like that. But just what the hell is consciousness? Does it really exist? What do the philosophers and scientists have to say on the matter? Where does consciousness come from? What is it made of? And on and on we go. The truth is, science can't say. Philosophers, try as they might, can't say either. At least not for sure. Most scientists color themselves materialists and do not grant reality to anything beyond matter, energy, and the forces that govern them, whatever those might be. And I'm not sure they understand them very well either. The thing is, if you believe everything is physical and obeying physical laws, you cannot hope to explain the notion of consciousness. Scientists try to do this, however, by saying that consciousness is emergent or reductive and just somehow arises from the purely physical activity of electric and chemical signals in the brain. They can and have gone a long way in explaining how the brain works and how the brain is related to conscious experience, but haven't gotten any closer to explaining why or how consciousness exists at all. It turns out that consciousness poses what's called the hard problem. The hard problem, you guys. Let's take the typical thought experiment associated with this problem. Imagine there was a sophisticated robot. Now, this is the day and age of sophisticated AI and quantum computing and all kinds of craziness. So imagine some, maybe not, maybe not so far off sci-fi world, we've got this super sophisticated robot. Uh, it can sense its environment. It can learn. It can adjust its behavior accordingly. Imagine it could process information, solve problems, and build upon what it learns. Imagine it can reproduce too, and make other like robots, and exchange information with them. You can see many similarities between this robot and yourself. You both exist, survive, and maybe even evolve to an ever-changing environment and set of circumstances. So what is the difference between you and the robot? Anything? Anything? You see, the robot responds to stimuli. So do you. But does the robot have an experience of those stimuli? Hmm. When the robot consumes fuel, as an example, does it taste it? When the robot meets another robot, does it have an impression of the other robot? Does it see it? Oh, oh it detects it, to be sure. But does it see it? Is there an experience of that other robot? Or is it just another piece of data to be processed? Does the robot like you have an inner experience? Does it feel anything at all? Or does it just act according to laws? It's hard to imagine that the robot has an inner life at all. Equally hard to believe it experiences anything subjective about itself or its environment. No emotions, no sensations, nothing unique to that particular robot. It has a self and an environment, to be sure, but that self is empty, and that environment is merely data. There is nothing that experience is like for a robot. So if that robot can exist, evolve, and survive without subjective experience, without an inner life, why did such a thing develop in us? What is the evolutionary advantage to consciousness? If we don't need it to survive, why, oh why, did the laws of nature allow it to emerge at all? Nature doesn't generate anything for no reason, and things that cease to be useful fall away. And yet, 
consciousness remains. <laughs> Today we're going to talk about what we know and don't know about consciousness. We'll follow David Chalmers as he lays out the hard problem and begins to navigate towards a potential solution. So there will be other episodes uh, extending. This is just the beginning, but let's get into it. The first bit in the conscious mind is called taking consciousness seriously. And he explains it in a really interesting way. He's basically talking about how science looks at... <laughs> I'm going to try to do this. I didn't plan on it, but I'm going to try to do this right up front. Science has this interesting way. Kyle and I were just talking about this the other day, that science has a great deal of explanatory power. You know, it can, it can, it can talk about how things behave. It can talk about how physical things act, how they interact. Um, and then we can use that knowledge to do all kinds of stuff, you know, to make quantum computers, to, to build a rocket ship and go to the moon. You know, we can do all sorts of things with the information we learn about what things do. But nobody ever stops and asks the question, does knowing what things do tell you anything about what the thing is? It's a really interesting question. And if you've never thought about it, it's, it's baffling. It's absolutely baffling because there are ways in which it seems legit. And there are ways in which it's obvious that it's missing something fundamentally important. So I'll tell you what I mean. I'll try. I'll try my best. I'm going to talk about physics a little bit, and it's, I'm stepping in the deep end here, and I'm, and I'm punching above my weight, so let me try. When scientists look at um, fundamental particles on the quantum level, they can measure things about them. And there are things that they call spin and charge and mass, things like that. And what those, what those words tell us, you know, spin and charge, they tell us something about what those particles do how they interact with other particles, what they do. And yet, scientists will tell you when they try to define for you what an electron is, let's say. They'll say, it is something, you know. They're just going to gloss over that word. It is something that has charge and spin and mass, something like that. It's like, okay, well, it's like you're telling me what it looks like. You're telling me what it does. But what the fuck is it, sir? And science just glosses over that like a politician. It is something that X, Y, Z. Okay, but what's the something, man? What's the something? And we pretend like that's an answer because we can use that information to do all kinds of cool stuff. But it's not an answer. To define what something does is not the same thing as to define what it is. And so this this is the same problem that we have with consciousness. And, and you'll see this as we go through, but it's like if, if a scientist can tell you what the brain does and what the neurons firing does and what the chemical and electrical impulses, what they do, and they can tell you all kinds of interesting things about how that affects your perception, how it creates your perception, um, you know, how it can be manipulated... Um, you can think of like, you know, electroshock therapy or, you know, psychedelic drugs or anything, how that stuff affects your consciousness. We learn a great deal about how the brain works and, you know, how our conscious experience is generated, um, you know, and all the ins and outs of that. And that's great. You, we can tell you what the brain does. But that's not the same question as saying what consciousness is, okay? What the brain does and what consciousness is are not the same thing. It's not the same question. But modern science doesn't like to think about things that are non-material. They don't like to think about things they can't measure. They don't like to ask the question, what is it or why? Only what it does, because that's what's useful to us. And people like Neil deGrasse Tyson, I've, I said this before months back, frustratingly try to convince you that that's enough, that that's all you need to know is what things do. Bullshit, man. Bullshit. I want to know what the thing is. I want to know what the thing is. I want to know what consciousness is. It's David Chalmers wants to know what consciousness is. And he says that science does not take that question seriously. What consciousness does is one thing. What consciousness is is another. 
Okay, so let me get into this. Here's David Chalmers taking consciousness seriously. He says, It seems utterly mysterious that the causation of behavior should be accompanied by a subjective inner life. How could a physical system such as a brain also be an experiencer? Interesting. Think about that. I mean, a lot of times we conflate those things. Let me read it again. How could a physical system such as a brain also be an experiencer? We think about a brain like a machine, you know, cause and effect. How can that machine be alive? How can it have an experience of the, of the, of the ongoings, right? That's a very weird thing, but we just conflate them together. Brain equals consciousness, no problem. Bullshit. All right, sorry. Why should there be something it is like to be such a system? Chalmers asks. Interesting. Why should there be something it is like? Hmm. All right. He goes on. One might think that we are making progress. But on closer look, most of this work leaves the hardest problems about consciousness untouched. But the, the work he's talking about is neuroscience and, you know, integrated information theory and all these things that, that philosophers and uh, biologists and, uh, you know, neurologists will talk about um, and all the progress we've made over the last, you know, 50, 50, 60 years. He says such work addresses what might be called the easy problems of consciousness. And he's going to define what's the easy problem. Things like, how does the brain process information? How does it process environmental stimulation? How does it integrate information? He says, these are important questions, but to answer them is not to solve the hard problem. And what's the hard problem? Why is all this processing accompanied by an inner life, by an experienced inner life? It's a great question. If your brain is a machine... And it's just firing off and cause and effect and, and stimulus response. And it's just going through this mechanical function. Why is that mechanical function accompanied by an experience? What? Why, why is it necessary to have an experience? Just turn the machine on. Let it do what it does. I think about my, my, my Roomba, you know, going around vacuuming the floor. I saw on Amazon the other day they got a Roomba that uh, you can put in your garden and it just weeds, all, it weeds your garden for you. Why can't I just turn on the guarding weeding robot and let it do its thing? Why should I assume that the robot has an experience of gardening? It the fucking doesn't. That's why. That's the hard problem. You've got all this mechanical business going on in the brain, cause and effect, stimulus response, chemicals, electrical impulses, blah, 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 blah. Why is all that mechanical shit accompanied by an inner experience at all? That, that's magical. What, what in the world? All right, back to Chalmers. He says, Some say that consciousness is an illusion. But I have little idea of what this could mean. Okay, so you can imagine if somebody's calling consciousness an illusion, especially from the context of, this hard, of the hard sciences. What they're saying is consciousness, like having an inner experience, that's an illusion. And the reason they say that, even though we're all experiencing it right now and we can't brush it off at all, none of us would call it an illusion, um, but the reason they do is because they, it can't be explained. It can't be explained by physical laws. It can't be explained by what we know about matter and energy and physics. It can't. Okay, so that's why science write it off as an illusion, because it's a hard problem. I'd rather not deal with that problem. I'm, I'm talking to you, Neil deGrasse. Um, okay, so some say consciousness is an illusion, but I have little idea what this could mean. It seems to me that we are sure of existence of conscious experience than we are of anything else in the world. I mean, that's the most obvious statement you could possibly make. Of course, the only thing we're sure about, because the only thing we're aware of, is our conscious experience. You can't write that off. You can't call that an illusion. If you can't explain it, fair enough. But it's there. We all experience it. We can't write it off. You're listening to me. You're having an experience of, of my voice and my thoughts and my ideas right now. Can't write that off. All right, Chalmers says, I find myself absorbed in an orange sensation. And something is going on. There is something that needs explaining. There is an experience. Okay, so colors is one of these subjective qualities that, that will come up. So this is why he's bringing up an orange sensation. It's like there's, there's not exactly any explanation, any reason why 
um, a, a, you know, a robot, a machine would need to, would need to observe color at all. You know, why would it need to observe color at all? Um, there's a whole other question about whether color exists in the world or whether it just exists in our mind. And it's not, it's not an easy question to answer. Um, you know, very few animals have color vision. You know, it's, it's interesting. Like millions of years of evolution before color vision emerged. Like, what does that mean? Does that mean color didn't exist before? Does it mean it's made up now? What does it mean? So that's a whole other problem. But, but, you know, an experience of color is one of these things like, I can't tell you if I, if I see orange and you see the same color, let's say that we're see, experiencing the same thing. We can never know that, you know, we, we point to it and we both say orange, but we have no idea. So there's something going on there. There's, you know, I'm detecting it. There's something there about color. What is that? He says it, it needs an explanation. He says, we know about consciousness more directly than we know about anything else. So proof is inappropriate. It's like we shouldn't, we shouldn't be worried about proving that consciousness exists because fucking pay attention. You know, what are you doing right now? You're, you're having conscious experiences. Why would you say you need proof of something that's immediately um, evident to you? And it's the only thing that's like that, immediately evident to you. You know? He says, I take consciousness to be a natural phenomenon falling under the sway of natural laws. That consciousness is a natural phenomenon seems hard to dispute. It is an extraordinarily salient part of nature, arising throughout the human species, and very likely in many others. And we have every reason to believe that natural phenomena are sub subject to fundamental natural laws. I would say that it's properly a scientific subject matter. It is a natural phenomenon like motion, life, and cognition, and calls out for an explanation in the way that these do. But it is not open to investigation by the usual scientific methods. Outside the first-person case, data are hard to come by. And that's the unique problem about consciousness. Outside of your personal experience, what he calls the first-person case, Data is hard to come by. You can't get into the head of another person. You can't have the experience of another person to compare and contrast and to figure out where the patterns are and where the truth is and where the illusion is. You can't do that. So the data is limited to your experience only. And yet, he says, consciousness in his mind is completely natural and it's a proper subject for science. And that, that's one way of him saying that science is not doing a good job of... of of asking the questions and trying to get to the answers, that they're brushing this off like it's woo-woo nonsense and they're missing something hugely significant. And this bit about um, outside the first-person case data are, are, are hard to come by, that reminds me of um, something Kyle brought up in a podcast episode a while ago where we're talking about um, psychedelic experience and he quoted um, Aldous Huxley, uh, the guy that wrote Brave New World, uh, who called human beings, uh, individual, you know, conscious creatures, he called them island universes. And I think that's exactly the right idea here. You know, we're all self-contained conscious universes. And there's very little, um, there's very little, you know, communication between us. We're just floating out in this, on these islands of consciousness and don't have any idea what's going on in any of the other islands, you know. All right, he goes on, he says, it seems to me that to ignore the problems of consciousness would be anti-scientific. It is in the scientific spirit to face up to them directly. To those who suspect that science requires materialism, I ask you to wait and see. Materialism is a beautiful and compelling view of the world, but to account for consciousness, we have to go beyond the resources it provides. I argue that there is a good reason to believe that almost everything in the world can be reductively explained. But consciousness may be an exception. All right, so we kind of touched on this in the beginning, but just talking about materialism is interesting because what he's saying is that to understand conscious experience requires a wider view of, of the world than saying everything is material, that everything can be broken down to matter and energy. There is nothing else. Um, everything is physical and obeys physical laws. He's saying that there's more to it than that. And if you, if you pretend that as a scientist, you have to stay in this materialist box and you can't ever go outside of it, 
then you're never going to have any hope of understanding what consciousness is. And you're not doing service to science. And you're not doing service to the problem. And you're not really searching for answers. And you can understand. I mean, people don't like being ridiculed. And materialist science has become super ingrained in the culture. It's done great things. It's become, you know, something like a god in our culture. And we bow to it. And, no, and nobody's ever, you know, none of these... Um, academics are ever going to uh, to walk that line, you know. If it means if it means that they're um, going to be subject to ridicule, if it means that uh, you know, it's just it's just a strange thing, man. The social component to science, it's like peer pressure. It's fucking weird, man. And the um, you know the need to conform and the, you know to a consensus. I, anyway, um, that that has always stopped scientific progress. You always have to push the envelope. You always have to look at things from a different perspective outside the box. Okay, everybody was perfectly happy with Isaac Newton's explanation of gravity until Einstein came along and said, oh no, it's something completely different. And it blew everybody's minds. And suddenly the math and science took off again and developed, quantum physics developed out of it. It's like, yes, that's what we need. We need people to stop being pussies and go push themselves, push the envelope beyond what, what's acceptable. You know, go where you need to go to find the answer. <laughs> like Jordan Peterson says, you know, got to take that trip to the underworld. You got to confront chaos. And that means going outside of the box. And that brings us to the next section here. Chalmers calls two concepts of mind. All right, here we go. He says, conscious, uh, conscious experiences range from vivid color sensations to experiences of the faintest background aromas, from hard-edged pains to the elusive experience of thoughts on the tip of one's tongue, from mundane sounds and smells to the encompassing grandeur of musical experience, from the tri triviality of a nagging itch to the weight of a deep existential angst, from the specificity of the taste of peppermint to the generality of one's experience of selfhood. All these have a distinct experienced quality. All are prominent parts of the inner life of the mind. So these are the kind of things that the, that the super sophisticated AI robot we talked about in the beginning in that thought experiment, these are the kind of things that are missing from the robot that are present in you and I. What are we, what are we supposed to say? That all of these experiences are you know, meaningless, you know, side effects of, you know, data processing in our brains, that these are just, you know, that they don't require explanation and can be written off? No, no. How important are all of those things I just talked about to your memories, to, to the experience of your life, to what it seems like for you to be who you are and for the world to be what the world is? It's way more than just mechanical processing of data. It's filled with elements of experience. It seems like to exist is like something. And different parts of existence are different from one another. They, they, have, a, they have a specific quality. They're like something. All right, he goes on. He says, These qualitative feels are also known as phenomenal qualities, or qualia for short. So we'll, maybe we'll call them qualia. He says, the problem of explaining these phenomenal qualities is just the problem of explaining consciousness. And he says, we can tell a story about how fields and waves and particles in a spatio-temporal manifold interact in subtle ways, leading to the development of complex systems such as brains. All right, let me pump the brakes because that's a lot. He's saying we can tell a scientific narrative. We can tell the myth, and I'm going to call it a myth of the scientific narrative. And it says that there are physical laws, things like fields and waves and particles. And they exist in something called a spatio-temporal manifold. That just means space and time. That's all that means. We have fields and waves and particles in space and time. And they interact together, and th those interactions create everything you see around you, in full stop, end of story, nothing more, nothing, nothing more to see here. And he says, in principle, there is no deep philosophical mystery in the fact that these systems can process information in complex ways, react to stimuli with sophisticated behavior, and even exhibit such complex capabilities as learning, memory, and language. He 
says, all this is impressive, but it is not metaphysically baffling. In contrast, the existence of conscious experience seems to be a new feature from this viewpoint. It is not something that one would have predicted from the other features alone. And so let's go back to our thought experiment. And he, what he's saying here is basically the robot, the super sophisticated AI robot, might be able to process information in complex ways, react to stimuli, and even exhibit complex capacities like learning, memory, and language. You know, again, a robot might might find find a way to communicate to its to the robots, the other robots that it's created. You know, this is what I've learned. This is the be- the best strategy to survive. Like an upload of data. You know, like going back to the Matrix analogy. You know, like Neo gets plugged into the Matrix and just gets up uploaded his you know karate skills, and suddenly he, he's a badass ninja. That's what I mean. Like you can imagine, all of that stuff could be possible in a completely mechanical system that's that's lifeless, that does not have consciousness. He said, what's confusing and hard to understand is the existence of conscious experience. That's the thing that needs to be, that needs to be explained. And you, wouldn't, you would never have predicted if you had all the information about this sort of robot developing and how it, you know, evolving and how, how it does its thing. You would never, ever imagine that, that any of those things would come with some sort of inner experience. You know, it's just cause and effect. The cogs and wheels are turning, stimulus response. There's nothing going on except for cause and effect, following natural laws. Even uh, even Stephen Hawking said that. I can't remember the quote, but, but years ago he said something something like um, that with with the natural laws, uh, you know, that exist in nature and gravity, that that's the only explanation you need, and you can write off the idea of God entirely. Something like that. This is the sort of arrogance that I'm that I'm talking about. That you know, you again, the, the scientific method is, is is such that if you can explain what something does, there's no need to to there's no need to continue to ask. Well, then what the hell is it? Because to them, what it does and what it is are exactly the same thing. Well, let me ask you that question. What do you do? You eat. You sleep. You love. You know. You hate. You, you fear, you plan. Um, is that what you are? Are you a are you a machine that feels and loves and eats and procreates and is that what you are? Are you what you do? I mean, there's no fucking question. No, you aren't merely what you do. All right, moving on. Chalmers says, if all we knew about were the, were the facts of physics. And even the facts about information processing and complex systems, there would be no compelling reason to postulate the existence of conscious experience if it were not for our direct evidence in the first person. (laughs) The hypothesis would seem unwarranted, almost mystical. Yet we know directly that there is conscious experience. That's exactly it. He's saying there would be no reason for us to ever assume that that sort of thing would arise, that an inner experience would ever have to accompany this mechanical, you know, actions. That are just being, that are just following the natural laws, right? Everything's just, just following the natural laws, like dominoes of cause and effect. There's no reason to ever imagine that a conscious inner experience w- would be required or, or would arise uh, to accompany those things. Why is it important that the thing acting knows that it's acting or what it's like? What the heck? What does that? What does that even mean? He said it seemed mystical, and yet every single one of us listening right now knows. Consciousness does exist because we're having a conscious experience right now. Then he goes on. He, he's going to ask a bunch of questions. Why does conscious experience exist? How does it arise? Is consciousness itself physical? How widespread is it? Why do individual experiences have their particular nature? Why is seeing red like this rather than like that? Why do we experience the reddish sensation that we do rather than something entirely different, like the sound of a trumpet? I mean, good question. Why? Why do experiences have these particular qualities and, and, and not others? That, that requires some explanation, you know? If it's not necessary to have an inner experience at all, and there is one, that's one question. Another question is, why is the inner experience like it is? It's a whole other question, equally baffling. And Chalmers says, the term consciousness is ambiguous, referring to a number of phenomena. 
When I talk about consciousness, I am talking only about the subjective quality of experience, what it is like to be a cognitive agent. To be conscious, in this sense, is roughly synonymous with to have subjective experience. So that's what we're going to be getting into. All right, this next bit is, it's called a catalog of conscious experiences. And this just gives us a way of trying to understand the qualia that he was talking about, these phenomenal qualities of our experience, the things that the robot doesn't have that we have, and, and trying to understand why it is they're so strange. Because they're so commonplace. You know, we have these things every day, all day, and even in our sleep while we're dreaming, you know. And it's, it's, they're so um, ubiquitous that we never stop to, to think about, you know, how interesting they are, how strange they are. And again, the, the AI, super sophisticated AI robot we talked about doesn't have them. So let's talk about it. So Chalmers says, here's a far from complete catalog of the aspects of conscious experience. Here we go. Visual experiences. What does he have to say about visual experiences? He says, among the many varieties of visual experience, color sensations stand out as the paradigm example of conscious experience due to their pure, seemingly ineffable qualitative nature. Any color can be all-provoking if we attend to it and reflect upon its nature. Why should it feel that like that? Why should it feel like anything at all? How could I possibly convey the, na- the nature of this color experience to someone who has not had such an experience? All right, so the first thing that comes up is, is, is ineffable. That means it's, it's impossible to put into words. It's impossible to communicate what you've experienced to somebody else. That, that's what I mean about color. You know, if I, if I look up at the sky and I see blue, and what I'm really seeing is purple, let's say, and you look up at the sky and you see blue and it's blue, you and I would both say it's blue, but I'd be seeing purple. And it's like we, know, we don't have any way of knowing exactly if I'm seeing anything at all like what you're seeing. And if I try to explain to you, I try to be more specific with you about what it is I'm seeing, there, there are no words to help me you know, hone in on that for you so you can try to understand if your experience and my experience are the same. There's no words for it. There's no way to communicate it. It's ineffable. And then he says, any color can be all-provoking if we attend to it. And what comes, to my, what comes to my mind there, first of all, I think it's interesting that the word ineffable and all-provoking are coming up because those are both words that we use to talk about the mystic experience and to talk about God. They're both ineffable and all-provoking. And here we're talking about a phenomena, just a visual experience. And, we're, and the same words come up. I think that's interesting. Um, but what also comes to my mind is um, like the expressionist paintings. I can't remember uh, who it was, but there was a series of paintings one of these guys did, and it was just haystacks. I think it's called haystacks. <laughs> I think it's called haystacks. Maybe it's Monet or something like that. And what he did was he painted haystacks. And he painted them at different times of day, under different light. And every single one of those paintings is dramatically different and equally beautiful. And it's simply because the colors and the shadows of the haystacks changed so much based upon the, the, where the light was coming from during the day. You know, was it cloudy? Was it bright? You know, was the sun over here, over there? That he was able to paint these dramatically different images of the exact same haystack. And... An artist, when an artist notices that, you know, it's like you, you and I drive by the freeway, we see the haystack, we think nothing, nothing of it. But if you, if you opened up your lawn chair and you sat down with the canvas and you looked at that haystack and you, and, you, and you focused your consciousness on it and you observed all of the intricacies of the shadows and the light shades and the pit and the hue and, you know, uh, just the trans, slowly transforming quality with, with shadows and colors, it would be awe-provoking. You know, it would be something so beautiful that you would put you would put paint to canvas to capture it. And that's what I mean. There's something religious about that experience. And we're only talking about the experience of a color. (laughs) Unbelievable. But why should it feel like that? Why should it feel like anything at all? He says. (laughs) Amazing. All right. So the next category is auditory experiences. So what does he have to say about those? He says, in some ways, sounds are even stranger than visual images. The structure of images usually corresponds to the structure of the world in a straightforward way. 
but nothing about the quality of a sound seems to correspond directly to any structure in the world. An old piano and a far-off oboe can combine to produce an unexpectedly haunting experience. As always, when we reflect, we ask the question, why should that feel like this? I think that's a good example. You think about how the score, you know, in a movie or in an old cartoon or something, how the music can change your emotional attachments to what's going on. And that, I mean, an old piano and a, and a far off oboe. I mean, you can, you can, you can kind of imagine what that sound, it's, it's a haunting sound. You know, it's like, wh- where are you going to see that music when, sh- when Scooby and Shaggy do are, go- are going through the, uh, the, you know, the haunted mansion or something that it's haunting music and it makes you feel a certain way. Okay. Why? Oh, why should a sound make you feel anyway? Period. Why? Why is there a connection between a sound and a feeling? Why should a sound have a feeling? That is fucking weird. It's mystical and unexplainable, and science has gone nowhere to help us understand that. All right, next is tactile experiences. What does he have to say about them? He says, uh, he says smell is in the same way Excuse me. Smell is in some ways the most mysterious of all the senses due to the rich, intangible, indescribable nature of smell sensations. Smell has little in the way of apparent structure and often floats free of any apparent object, remaining a primitive presence in our sensory manifold. Partly due to the slot and key process by which our olfactory receptors are sensitive to various kinds of molecules, it seems arbitrary that a given sort of molecule should give rise to this sort of sensation but give rise, it does. So, so this is an idea that, uh, that the molecules have this lock and key sort of shape. When it goes into the receptor, the different shapes give you a different experience. So that's what you're saying is a smell, you know, a different shape. What you're doing is you're smelling the shape of the molecule. <laughs> that's very strange, but that's what biologists will tell you. That, that's what's happening. Molecules all have different shapes. They, they connect into your receptors, and the shape is detected, and the, the result is a certain smell. But why, oh why, should a certain shape, molecule, have one smell versus another? What, what is the purpose of that? I mean, you can imagine that, that a machine who has the same sort of system, a molecule has a lock and key sort of thing going on, it, it connects to the you know, mechanical receptor, the machine knows what that smell means, if it's dangerous, if it's, you know, if it's, if it's, um, you know, fuel, something it can use. It doesn't have to have an experience of any kind. It just has to have a cause and effect mechanical uh, process that says, when you, when you have this, when you detect this sort of thing, do this or do that. It's just a completely programmable cause and effect sort of thing. There's no reason it should have an experience of it, and yet it does. All right, now we get, that brings us to taste experiences. Um, he doesn't have a whole lot to say on taste experiences that are different from what we've already talked about, so let me just skip past it and we'll get to some others. He says, experiences of hot and cold. You know, you can't exactly put that in any one category. He says, think of the heat sensation of one's skin from being close to a fire and the hot, cold sensation that one gets from touching ultra-cold ice. You know what I mean? <laughs> ever stick your foot in the the bathtub when it's way too hot and for a second it feels cold and you're like, what the hell? Uh, What is that? You know, what is that? Why does it feel like that? Then he brings up pain. Obviously, that's related. He says, pain is a paradigm example of conscious experience. Perhaps this is because pains form a very distinctive class of qualitative experiences and are difficult to map directly onto any structure in the world or in the body although they are usually associated with some part of the body. And pain is interesting. Uh, Jordan Peterson always says this about pain. He says, nothing is realer than pain. And you know what I mean. If you're in pain, there is absolutely no denying it. You know, if you're in severe enough pain, there's no deep breathing or meditation that's going to get you to... um, uh, you know, to pretend that, it, that you know, the, the experience is an illusion. When you're in pain, it is the most immediate and, and evident and real thing. And yet, what's that, that? And yet, that pain is a completely subjective 
experience, an inner experience, right? If I'm an AI robot and I, you know, damage my, you know, arm or something, you know, I, I can have a, a detection of something that needs to be repaired and cause and effect, dominoes falling. I can go ahead and repair that. You know, it, it brings, you know, the quote unquote attention of the robot to something that needs to be done. Does that have to have a, a, an experience associated with it? No, not at all. But it does. Why? Then he talks about other bodily sensations just to bring your attention to some other things that are harder to define. Hunger pangs, itches, tickles, and the experience associated with the need to urinate. How about orgasms? How about the feeling of hitting your funny bone? He says these are also experiences associated with the sense of where one's body is in space. You know, you can think about you think about inertia. You can think about the feeling of laying versus standing. You can you can you can talk about how it feels when you're standing up on the bus and the bus driver comes to a quick stop and you feel your stomach flop around or jumping off the high dive. Let's say uh, that sort of thing. Strange experiences. Why do those inner experiences exist at all? How do they exist? Where do they exist? You know. Then there's some less obvious things like mental imagery. This is interesting. He says, moving ever inward towards experiences that are not associated with particular objects in the environment or the body, but that are in some sense generated internally, we come to mental images. There is often a rich phenomenology associated with visual images conjured up in one's imagination. One can have auditory images conjured up by one's imagination, even tactile, olfactory, gustatory images. Although these are harder to pin down and their associated qualitative feel is usually fainter. But you can imagine if you were trying to imagine a sound or you were trying to imagine, you know, the way a, a bumpy stucco feels on your fingers or something, you can do that. And they're different, you know. The mental images that you conjure up for, for remembering what a sound is like or conjuring up what a feel is like, you can, you can, you can do that. You can, you can kind of recreate them in your, in your mind, but they're different, you know. Those two examples are, are different. So there's different types of mental imagery, meaning they feel different to you. Isn't that weird? And then he starts talking about conscious thought. He says, This applies to thoughts that one thinks to oneself and to the various thoughts that affect one's stream of consciousness. He says, There is something it is like to be having such thoughts. What it is like to think of a lion is subtly different from what it is like to think of the Eiffel Tower. Desire seems to exert a phenomenological tug, and memory often has a qualitative component, as with the experience of nostalgia or regret. I think that's, I think that's an amazing example. Uh, and it's quite true. I mean, if you try to think in your mind, you know, bring to mind the image of a lion or the thought of a lion and you try to do the same thing with something like the Eiffel Tower, you're doing a similar thing. You know, the process is similar. All that mechanical stuff happening in your brain, something similar about it. And yet, the idea of a lion feels a certain way, and the idea of the Eiffel Tower feels a certain way. You know? Even though they're both imaginary things going on in a similar way in your brain. You know, the lion might feel... You know, it, it might feel majestic. It might feel dangerous. The Eiffel Tower definitely doesn't. And then he starts talking about the way that desire feels. And, uh, and he's, he uses the word nostalgia and regret. And those are words, you know, but you know what they mean. And what they mean is how they feel, right? You know, you look at an old photograph and you get that feeling of nostalgia, what is that? That's a strange feeling. That's a strange qualia. Why in the world should that feeling accompany looking at a picture? You can, if I was a robot, I could look at the picture. I could, I could uh, scan it. I could evaluate all the all the uh, items in it. You know how far away they are from each other. You know all the different characteristics. What's going on? You know I, I could predict what what the next action will be in in the in the photo based upon you know everything that's been set up. I can do all kinds of processing of that image. Why? Should I feel nostalgic while I'm doing it? Why should I feel that gut pain of regret about something I hadn't done that I should have, you know? 
Why do those feelings accompany that experience at all? This is the mystery. This is the hard problem of consciousness. But wait, there's more. Emotions. What about emotions? He says emotions often have distinct experiences associated with them. The sparkle of a happy mood. The weariness of a deep depression. The red-hot flow of a rush of anger. The melancholy of regret. All of these can affect conscious experience profoundly, although in a much less specific way than localized experiences such as sensations. Think of the rush of pleasure one feels when one gets a joke. Another example was the feeling of tension one gets when watching a suspense movie or when waiting for an important event. The butterflies in one's stomach that can accompany nervousness also fall into this class. So emotions are really interesting. And it's not just because they're, like, we, like we've been saying over and over and over again, that you don't really, you don't really need them to accompany you know, action. But they do, and that's a mystery. It's the same thing with emotions. But what's, what's even better here, what's even more interesting with emotions, is Chalmers says that emotions can affect conscious experience profoundly. And so what that means is the way that we, the way that we experience the world, our perception of the world can be changed based upon these, these emotions. So let me try to say that in a different way. A robot's going to look out and perceive the world in a, let's say, objective way, exactly as it is, without anything going on. But you and I would look at that same thing and potentially have emotions going on associated with that, uh, with that image. If we do, and the emotions are positive or negative, let's say, um, that will actually change the perception for us. It'll change the experience of the perception. So let's say the robot sees a woman in the distance. I see a woman in the distance and recognize that she's my long-lost sister or something. Right? I'm having, I'm having emotions going on seeing that same thing the robot's seeing that it's not seeing. It changes, it changes the scene entirely. You know, for the robot, it's, it's, just, a, it's just a fact. For me, it, it, it's creating all sorts of things. It's creating the desire to confirm, is that my long-lost sister? It's, it's, it's driving my behavior to walk closer and, and to get a, better, get a better view. It's doing all kinds of things. Maybe it, even, maybe it even sort of blocks out my peripheral vision. Maybe I don't see the same degree of detail of the, of the, of the buildings on each side of the road because my, my consciousness is just sucked into that image of the woman that I want to know more about. So there's a completely different experience happening for me than for the robot. And it's purely due to these emotions that are attached to it. And again, the emotions don't need to be there. The robot sees it as the same as me. But the emotions are there for me. And there's no explanation for that. Why should the emotions accompany the experience? Then he talks about the sense of self. And he says the phenomenology of the self is so deep and intangible that it sometimes seems illusory. Still, there seems to be something to the phenomenology of self. There's something that it's like to feel like a self. You know? The robot doesn't, doesn't understand that it's a self, and certainly not the way that you and I do. And it feels a certain way. Why should that be? That's a really interesting one to me. Then he um, adds a bunch of others. He says dreams, arousal, fatigue, intoxication, or the novel character of other drug-induced experiences, maybe like the mystic experience, the psychedelic experience. He says, I have also left aside the unity of conscious experience, the way that all these experiences seem to be tied together as the experience of a single experiencer. And that's even more baffling. That's even more baffling. It's one thing for, it's one thing for let's say, a robot, like this AI robot that we're talking about, to have experiences, assuming the robot was actually, and, you know, it's not. But if it was, you know, it encounters, let's say, a dangerous thing, and rather than just recognizing danger and fleeing, it actually feels fear. Let's say it does. That's one thing. That's a mystery, and it's, it's interesting. But it's not the same thing as, as having a sense of continuity, of having all of the experiences you've ever had tied together into a single thing that you would call the self or the experiencer. It's like 
this unity of experience is what gives you the idea of, of yourself as an individual. And so tying all the experiences together under one umbrella and, and calling that umbrella you, that's something that, that the robot can't do. And even if it could in individual instances, tying them all together is a whole other thing and it feels a whole other way. And it's completely unexplainable. All right, the last bit we're going we're gonna to talk about today is making a distinction while we're having this conversation about, I guess, science and philosophy and what science is missing and refusing to, to uh, tackle and what philosophy maybe, maybe does a better job of. He calls this the, phenomena, the, phenom, the phenomenal and psychological concepts of mind. So two different, two different ways of looking at and trying to understand what consciousness is. Um, he's calling it mind here, but the phenomenal and the psychological So here we go. He says, Cognitive science deals largely in the explanation of behavior, and insofar as it is concerned with mind at all, it is with mind construed as the internal basis of behavior, and with mental states construed as those states relevant to the causation and explanation of behavior. All right, that's a whole mouthful. He's just saying cognitive science. This is the hard sciences that are trying to understand what consciousness is that they deal strictly with behavior. Now, what did, I, what did I call that earlier? Behavior is what things do. It's not what things are, right? Can we agree on that? So if I'm trying to figure out what consciousness is, and I'm studying what it does, just like, just like if I'm a physicist and I'm studying electrons, and I say, well, they seem to have you know, spin and charge and mass. Well, that's what they, that's what they do. It's not what they are. It's how they interact with, the, with each other, you know? has nothing to do with what they are. It's only what they do. If I was sitting there observing a human being jumping rope, and that was all I ever saw was, a, was of a human being jumping rope and never doing anything else, would I assume that a human being is a rope jumper? No. That, that, would, be, that would be wrong. Things are not what they do, or they're not merely what they do. And yet, cognitive science is studying exactly that. The explanation for behavior, for what people do. And so they're only concerned, he says, with consciousness as, as you know, the basis for behavior, what causes us to do things and why. And he says, such states may be conscious or not, you know. From the point of view of cognitive science, an, an internal state responsible for behavior is mental, whether it is conscious or not. So this is the, the perspective from cognitive science. He goes on, he says, At the root of all this lies two quite distinct concepts of mind. The first is the phenomenal concept. This is the concept of mind as conscious experience, and of a mental state as consciously experienced. The second is the psychological concept. This is the concept of mind as the causal or explanatory basis for behavior. According to the psychological concept, it matters little whether a mental state has a conscious quality or not. All right, so this distinction is exactly why I brought up the robot example in the beginning. Because something like you and I, we have this phenomenal quality to our experience, and our lived experience seems like that. And any mental state we have is accompanied by some sort of inner experience. Now, we could, we could look at the psychological concept and just looking at behavior and what causes it and why. And that's the robot, you know, we can explain the brain, we can explain a robot, a super intelligent, sophisticated AI robot, exactly like this. You know, it does A because of X, Y, and Z. It's all, you know, perfectly mechanical, perfectly physical. And, it, and it, you know, for the, for the cognitive scientists, it doesn't matter whether, that's, whether there's an inner experience going on or not. Because all they're trying to explain is the whys and hows. They're only trying to explain what consciousness does, not what it is. All right, he says, on the phenomenal concept, mind is characterized by the way it feels. On the psychological concept, mind is characterized by what it does. Neither of them is the correct analysis of mind. They cover different phenomena, both of which are quite real. And I think that's really important to emphasize. You know, Chalmers is not saying that that this mechanical, psychological, you know, uh, model and understanding how the brain works and all of the cause and effect, you know, um, 
uh, mechanisms and so forth, that all of that stuff is not wrong. It's not like, you know, we can write that off. We can't. That's completely, completely legitimate uh, explanation of the material reality. But it's, it's a completely different field than the subjective, you know, inner qualities that we're talking about, the phenomenological qualities, that they're completely different. He says they cover different phenomena, both of which are real. So if science wants to continue to explore only the psychological, only the mechanical, you know, components, more power to you. But you're leaving something completely unquestioned, unexplored. A whole other realm, or the whole other half of this of this coin, you're, you're completely ignoring it. And that's a mistake. And then he says this, he says, perhaps every phenomenal state is a psychological state in that it plays a significant role in the causation and explanation of behavior. And perhaps every psychological state has an intimate relation to the phenomenal. Okay, so now he's starting to conflate the ideas of the phenomenal and the psychological. He's like, maybe, maybe they're the same or maybe they're related. Maybe they're interrelated always, you know, and that, that's easy to understand. It's like... Um, you know, if I cut my hand, there's a psychological state of mind, um, and there's also the pain, right? There's 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 the inner experience of the outer reality. There's both things going on together. So so might we say that they're just one thing? You know, why are we breaking them down like 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 we are and calling one psychological and one you know phenomenological? He says, what it means for a state to be phenomenal is for it to feel a certain way. And what it means for a state to be psychological is for it to play an appropriate causal role. So if I feel pain, I pull my hand away. It controls my behavior, and it goes hand in hand with the pain. The pain is internal. The behavior is external, but they're connected. Okay, that's interesting. Okay. He goes on. He says, but assimilation of the, of the phenomenal to the psychological seems to me to be a great error. Okay, so... Pump the brakes. Maybe we don't want to do this. He says, when we wonder whether somebody is having a color experience, we are not wondering whether they are receiving environmental stimulation and processing it in a certain way. Right? That's the robotic part. That's the psychological part. He said, we are wondering whether they are experiencing a color sensation. And this is a distinct question. Boom. Absolutely. They are different. There is absolutely something different about the robot getting this stimulus from the environment and and understanding that stimulus versus having that experience and feeling a certain way about it, you know, experiencing a color sensation. And where he wraps up is he says, what is mysterious is why the state should feel like something, why it should have a phenomenal quality at all. That's the question. That is the hard question. Why should it have a phenomenal quality? All right, so let me read you my prepared conclusion here. Before I do, I want you to know this is this this Chalmers stuff, it's going to take a few episodes to get through. Uh, I may jump around a little bit. I got another book in the mail today. Um, where is it? I got another book in the mail today called Modes of Sentience. Um, uh, I'm not going to be able to pronounce this guy's name because it's something, um, his last name is hyphenated and the first name is, uh, Scandinavian or something or German or something with umlauts and stuff. And I'm, I'm American, so I don't know what those letters mean. Um, guy's name is Peter, um, S J O S T E D, uh, T hyphen Hughes, Peter. Oh boy. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, uh, insult him by trying to pronounce his name. Um, but the whole thing is about psychedelics metaphysics and panpsychism and it goes hand in hand with all this Chalmers stuff uh, so um, maybe I'll jump back and forth between the two and try to flush this out really well over the next couple of weeks but um, but here we go let's try to wrap this up like this all right I know this is premature we're only a few pages into the book at this point <laughs> only a few but I'd like to propose a solution to the last question to the hard problem as Chalmers put it why should a mental state have a phenomenal quality at all? Why should an experience feel any particular way at all? Why not just mechanical cause and effect, stimulus response? The answer, I think, requires an assumption. Oh, how anti-scientific of me. 
And not just any assumption, but a hippy-dippy one at that. Let's ask the metaphysical question. What is consciousness? Suppose we say, as I've done, that consciousness is God. And suppose we go a step further and suggest that everything is God. Everything is consciousness. There is nothing else. Now, we know what consciousness does because we are conscious ourselves. What consciousness does is experience. Following this logic, then, we can ask the question, what is God experiencing if God is all there is? And we can easily answer, if God is all there is to experience, then God is experiencing itself. Consciousness experiencing consciousness. Okay? Now let's go one hippy dip further. Let's call hippy dip a formal unit of measurement. We're going to go one hippy dip further and say that the mystics, uh, and say as the mystics do, that God separated itself from itself, whatever that means, in order to experience itself. That separation is being, it is material reality, the cosmos, the laws of nature, and you and I. Now let's ask the question again. Why should a mental state have a phenomenal quality at all? Why does experience feel like something to the experiencer? Because experience is not stimulus response. It is God's experience of itself. It is self-consciousness. What experience tells us is what God is like. And that, my friend, is consciousness. It is not mechanical and dead but living, moving, transforming, and continuously coming to understand what it itself is. Like I've said a thousand times, we are the experience that God is having. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know, it's not easy work thinking it's hard and full of uncertainties but i'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze see what i did there let's find out together in the next episode